Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of these pets who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative pet talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. If you want to stay in the know when it comes to doing what's best for your pets, follow me on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find me at Tracy Hotchner. That's Tracy with an I-E. Have a pet-related question or comment? Post it on my page or tweet me. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. I also produce the philanthropic Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, which I take around the country, celebrating the love between dogs and their people while benefiting the animal welfare groups that bring them together. More information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. Named after their rescued kitties, W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and D.A. for Vanessa, Waruva's owner, David Foreman, is passionate about good nutrition. Their new Caloric Harmony Dry Food for Dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually metabolizes food and the importance of high-quality protein in the diet. Not all calories are created equal. Our pets' bodies and ours digest Twinkies and chicken breasts quite differently. Look for Waruva wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. I have three very different people joining me today. The first one's going to be Priscilla Clark from the Connecticut Humane Society, which was the beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival when it came to Stanford. We're going to talk about all the incredible work the Connecticut Humane Society has done in all three of its locations. Cassie Bonus will be here from the University of Missouri, we're going to talk about these fake ESAs for people claiming they have an emotional support animal and, and what the Department of Transportation is doing about that egregious offense. And Blake is going to be here from the Furry Foundation talking about the film that he and his wife made called The Guardians of Recoleta about the, the community cats in a, in, a, in a cemetery that's going to be the very first film in the Cat Film Festival. So Many wonderful topics today, but close to home, we have the Connecticut Humane Society and Priscilla Clark. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What's it like to to be in charge of developing the the constituency, the dollars, the welfare of animals and people in three different locations? Is that like having three different shelters? Well, there are three different uh, buildings, but they all have the same purpose and the same cause just in three very different uh, communities in Connecticut, in uh, Newington, which is right outside of Hartford, uh, down in Waterford in southeastern Connecticut, as well as Westport in Fairfield County. So uh, we, do, we do a lot of good across the state, and uh, really development, I go out and tell people about what's happening, um, how we are answering the call of animal welfare. And but but in being in such three quite far-flung physical locations, is it like running three different shelters? I mean, in other states, 
those communities that far apart, Hartford and Westport, for example, would have their own humane groups or societies. So having one umbrella must be handy in one way, but more, more somehow it must be more challenging, no? Well, it definitely keeps us all on our toes. <laughs> and uh, the, the work that's being done, uh, for example, it, it really is statewide. Um, something we're really focusing on at Connecticut Humane Society right now is uh, medical care, affordable medical care, out in the community so that people don't have to surrender their pet to us for rehoming. Now, that, believe it or not, is a statewide problem. Wow. Uh, veterinary costs are so expensive, and uh, a lot of folks... Um, will have to surrender a pet or, uh, you know, find a new home for it because they can't afford um, an emergent medical situation. So what we try to do with our community wellness clinics as well as our reduced cost veterinary clinic in Newington is help people keep their pets healthy to keep them in their homes. So that, so you catch, like with, with any kind of preventive health care for humans too who can't afford human health care, it, the preventive work it catches things early and then keeps an animal healthier so they don't, I mean, short of an accident, so they don't face some systemic problem that could have been caught and treated early. Is that the thought? Exactly. And, you know, go back 50 years ago when pet overpopulation, homeless pet overpopulation right, right. was the biggest problem. And mm -hmm. uh, Connecticut and all of New England have done a great job with spay neuter, uh, getting that message out, making sure that everyone understands the importance of spay neuter. Right. So, uh, so now we're, we're not just having a reactionary response to overpopulation. Right. Connecticut Humane Society is, is being proactive with its programs so that we can keep pets out of shelters. Um, we also work very closely with the animal control community across the state of Connecticut, the, your local police departments, uh, that animal control division, and providing them assistance because uh, we don't want to just help the pets that come into our shelter. We want to help homeless pets all across the state. And I, and I guess that it's curious because you think that the, the, the needs of communities would be so wildly various. You have Hartford, which is a very mixed city. It has a lot of big business. It used to be, what, the, the center of insurance companies in the, in the country or something. But it has inner city. It has really underprivileged areas. And having grown up in Westport and having gone back and just watched it sort of get fatter and richer all the time, it doesn't seem like there'd be those kind of... Uh, financial constraints or even com as many community cats or even community dogs. Do you not have to alter your message and what you offer in two such divergent communities? I don't personally know Newington, but I imagine it's its own little world as well. Correct. Newington is really a, a you know, a bedroom community, as you could call it, of Hartford. And, oh, I uh, see. With, with uh, small industry, um, educational facilities, et cetera. And uh, really, we, we run our pet food pantry for families in need of keeping their pets healthy with healthy food. We run that down in Westport, in Waterford. No kidding. Up in Newington as well. There is need all across the state. So uh, when we look at a community, we don't just say, what's the mean average income? And right, right. We'll give them this service. Mm -hmm. um, you really need to you know, we sit down, we talk with the animal control officers, we talk with the community groups. Um, one of the reasons why we started a, a wellness program just for wellness visits 
up in Norwich, um, we started working with uh, some community resources, a, uh, a people shelter and uh, a food bank, and developed a program, found funding for it, and now um, we offer that program to underserved populations in Norwich because the need was there. Everybody loves pets, and we want to help them keep, keep their pet healthy. So really there are pockets of need all across the state. And, and if you do have homeless shelters, as I've discussed it with a variety of people on the show over the years, the people that are homeless, often all they have left is a, a bag of belongings and a dog or a cat. And so that becomes the most precious thing in their world. I mean, many of us feel that way about our pets anyway, but imagine if that's all you had. So being able to keep them healthy and fed is, uh, is, is a huge service to the community. When you have people looking to adopt and you have fewer and fewer puppies and younger animals or kittens, because spay-neuter has been so successful in the Northeast, are you one of the shelters that does have sister shelters, if you will, in the South, where spay-neuter is still seemingly in, sometimes in the dark ages? They have whole litters of beautiful puppies and kittens just being abandoned or, or never even looked after. Are you able to transport any of those? Absolutely, Tracy. Connecticut Humane Society works with partner shelters in the South, uh, to supplement, uh, because everyone here in Connecticut wants pets. We want pets. Yes. A lot of people want young pets. Uh, so uh, down south, uh, because they're, the, the south is behind the curve with spay-neuter, absolutely. And a lot of times resources are very far away. So uh, you could live 100 miles from your nearest veterinary hospital. And uh, so unfortunately, pets down there, if there's overpopulation, and there's also oftentimes a lack of accessible veterinary care. So we work with uh, sister shelters down south, and we bring pets up, not just puppies, but uh, uh, dogs and cats. Um, we do also, uh, as you probably know, Connecticut Humane Society accepts pets from individuals who need to find shelter for their pet, a rehoming for their pet. And we also take pets from local animal control. So across the state, if there is a pet in need anywhere here, they're getting care from us as well, whether they're spending the night in our shelter or not. So uh, we are bringing, we're bringing pets in for families who we know are going to love and care for them from a little far flung, but, uh, but it, it seems to be working. Last year, Connecticut Humane Society found homes for over 4,600 animals. Wow. And those were not necessarily animals that originated in the state of Connecticut, but they, they got homes by you being able to, to be the middleman, the matchmaker. Exactly. Exactly. And the 4,600 pets uh, finding homes is a, is a big number. Yes. And an even, an even more exciting number is when we took a look at 2016, Connecticut Humane Society, through all of its programs, through our, our medical programs, through our community programs and pet adoption, and all of our wonderful, amazing volunteers across the state, we actually helped nearly 16,000 pets. So not only did we touch 16,000 pets, but families. And, and a family, obviously, as we know, you know, one pet can have five family members. That's right, easily. So you can take that number, multiply that times five or ten, 
And because it, it's not just for the pets that we're looking for a humane community. We're looking for a humane community across the state for people and pets. A little more forgiving, a little more accepting, a little less judgmental or critical. Just there's a need, we're going to meet the need. It, I, I think it's an important part about a humane society. The word humane um, obviously can refer to many species, the human one as well. And I think it is an important part of the kind of education that you and other humane societies do to the younger generation, work in schools. And I, I'm sure you have loads of school kids come through or you have various projects or outreach to them. Because when you make the, the next generation aware of not just that animals, you know, are tender and need our caretaking, but the ways in which animals can join our families. It's probably gone a long way to helping people embrace the idea of adoption rather than shopping when there's an option. Absolutely. We, uh, uh, on any given day, so we're open seven days a week at Connecticut Humane. On any given day, you'll see a group of school children coming through, uh, getting a tour from one of our trained ambassadors, as well as we do have programs. We do go out in underserved communities and underserved schools uh, across the state with uh, some really basic humane education programs to, as you said, start educating when kids are young, understanding that to, to be a good citizen in this world uh, doesn't just mean being kind to animals. You want to, we're looking to have a stronger community through being more humane. And, and, and it maybe even counteracts some of the negativity that school kids can have towards each other, the otherness of other kids. And, you know, bullying is kind of like the trendy phrase, but it really has more to do with non-inclusion, with, with a kind of exclusionary, um, I don't know, it's not in every school, obviously, and it's not in every every age group. But I think that somehow embracing animals, even some scruffy, slightly not perfect kitten or dog uh, in your world pr probably can make people a little less tricky about people. Maybe not. Maybe you have to be wearing the right kind of blue jeans or they're just not going to be your friend. But luckily, dogs and cats don't wear blue jeans, right? Exactly. And uh, talking about being inclusive, uh, it's so important that people understand that a three-legged dog can be the most amazing family pet or a blind cat or, uh, you know, a, a pet with some type of physical imperfection. They can be the perfect pet. And just like people, we all have yep. our imperfections and uh, everyone deserves to be loved. Yes. I mean, all messages that I think it's one of the reasons that adoption is so emotionally satisfying for people. When people adopt, you get this feeling, I did something good, I did something right, but I'm also, you know, not worrying about what the uh, what the breed or the name brand or the something of a dog is. Our society has become sort of materialistic and and status conscious and sort of label conscious. And the great thing about humane societies is they take all that away. It's just a dog or a cat or a bunny. And that's all it needs to be to make you happy and for you to be able to offer it a good home. It just seems that it's a nice counteraction to a very materialistic world. When I was down in San Antonio with the Dog Film Festival, I have to say, I was pretty darn shocked by the amount of small stray dogs in the Animal Defense League with litters of 11 to 14 puppies. 
and there were lots of them. And I thought, oh, these these are the cutest little puppies. They need to go to Connecticut. I mean, really, it's like, why is there, they wouldn't last a nanosecond, right? How complicated is that? I mean, one of the dogs, one of the mom dogs had mange. I mean, these, apparently there are packs of roaming unowned dogs. Some of them are actually owned in various areas of San Antonio. Is this something that you were aware of? I'm still in shock from it. I want to ask everyone in the sheltering community, do you know that this is actually happening in a major metropolis? I actually am very familiar with uh, animal welfare in Texas. Um, half my family's in Texas. Oh, I'll be and darned. What, what, a, what a coincidence. So tell us, what's going on there? And there, there's, there are so many factors in, um, in the deep southern states. Not only is the fact that it's warm all year round, so as opposed to up in New England when we just have spring is kitten and puppy season, kitten and puppy season is all year round down south. Um, because of the fact of the warm weather or the the lack of cold winters. Uh, Combining that with, as I mentioned before, the uh, lack of direct um, location for veterinary clinics. I see. Uh, Texas is a very big state. And uh, never mind driving 100 miles to a local veterinarian. It could be 200 miles to the next veterinarian. Yes, yes. Uh, there are definitely uh, financial constraints in uh, some of the southern states in terms of uh, being able to afford uh, good pet veterinary care, as well as uh, some of the um, the mores of pets right. in, in certain cultures, in certain communities, is that they are a uh, not a member of your family, but they are something you own. And I, I feel that a lot of times I see, I see a big difference in that respect in terms of culture, uh, in terms of my, my dog is my third child, for example, right. or, or, right. uh, or people say, oh, I have my grand dog. <laughs> um, and I, I find that in some different cultures in some different parts of the country, it's more of this is a possession. It's like my car. My dog is like my car. My dog guards my car. And uh, that's not to say that people don't love their pets and aren't as humane as they possibly can be, but it, it's definitely a different uh, culture, a different mindset in a lot of communities that we here in the Northeast are not familiar with. And also the idea you aren't going to tell me what to do with my dog, i.e. don't tell me to spay or neuter a dog. That's none of your business. That's my business. There you go. And also the idea of these packs of roaming dogs in San Antonio that nobody owns, but nobody sort of doesn't own them either, which you see in India or parts of Latin America. It's just not exactly what you think of as happening. Granted, Texas is gigantic. I understand it takes, I don't know, 10 hours to drive from one end to the other or one width to the other. It's it's definitely huge. I mean, I get that. And I get that Obviously, they can't. Not everyone can be serviced by the various kind of services we want. But I just wanted those litters of puppies to come to the Northeast because they would be little princes and princesses, rather than you know who knows if they're going to go back into families that will. Uh, they're all pediatric spay neuters for the reason that they can't depend on people to spay or neuter them later. But are they going to wind up just roaming in the streets too? If that's the culture, I mean, again, that's imposing a different set of values 
where they're probably not that welcome. But if you ever run, since you have roots in Texas and you ever run low on, on, on dogs, puppies, <laughs> I mean to say, and they're, and they're not all pit bulls, which is to say nothing negative about pit bulls. People adore them, but a, a big variety and lots of dogs that really do look like the street dogs of India or Mexico or somewhere, you know, smallish, brownish, curled up tail, just adorable. And the puppies are so cute, you could eat them up with a spoon. So if you ever run low and you're like, God, we could really use a puppy fix here. Let me give you the name of the uh, development manager at the Animal Defense League, a very nice man. And maybe he'd be delighted to send you a box, so to speak, full of 12 puppies. <laughs> Priscilla, thanks so much for all the great stuff you guys are doing at the Connecticut Humane Society and making sure that everybody is happy and safe and stays together or gets together happily. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with Cassie Bonus from the University of Missouri. This show is brought to you by Halo Holistic Natural Dog and Cat Foods, which are made only with whole meats, never any rendered meat meals like chicken meal or byproduct meal. Dogs love meat and cats are obligate carnivores, so optimum nutrition starts with meat that their bodies can best utilize. With responsibly sourced ingredients slow-cooked in small batches, independent tests have shown Halo foods are highly digestible so your pet's bodies can absorb the nutrients. When you feed your pet Halo food, at the same time you'll be nourishing less fortunate shelter pets because for every purchase you make, Halo gives a bowl of food to shelters. I am back with Cassie Boness, who's been on the show before when we talked about this whole topic of animals being allowed into places with their people because the people need them with them or is it just that they want them with them cassie welcome back it's great to have you here i know you're on the brink of having a baby i'm sorry i just have to say that it's so exciting (laughs) so i'm sure that your um your mind is still very much on your work that you've been doing at the university of missouri can you uh, describe for people that may have forgotten our earlier conversation which was many moons ago or not heard it the work that you're doing at University of Missouri and, and what your intention is about this ESA, Emotional Support Animal, service vests, dogs, rules, Department of Transportation. Wind us back a little right. to understand what, what your part is in this in this work. Right. Um, so about two years ago, um, myself and one of my co-authors, um, Dr. Jeffrey Youngren, kind of became aware of this emotional support animal Um, I kind of want to say debacle because Mm -hmm. that's kind of how it came to our attention. Um, We saw a lot of animals on airplanes. We saw animals defecating or fighting or passengers getting upset um, about animals misbehaving. And um, it came to our attention that in order to have one of these animals on the airline with you, for example, you had to have a letter from a treating mental health professional. Um, And as I'm a psychologist in training, and Jeff Youngren is a clinical and forensic psychologist. So as people in this field, it kind of um, perked up our ears a little bit, and we started to wonder um, what exactly is required in these letters, um, what exactly is our role in writing these letters. Um, there's not a lot of, there wasn't a lot of regulations on it, obviously, since it was a fairly new um, thing that was happening. And so we kind of started to explore, um, is it appropriate for Treating mental health professionals to be writing these letters, um, we argue that it in fact is not um, because the role of someone making an ESA type evaluation, that's a disability assessment. Um, and we argue that that's better, that's a, 
um, assessment that's better served by another type of psychologist, a forensic psychologist, rather than a treating mental health professional, um, which uh, the law says is who the letter is required from. And so the law is written in such a way that it kind of creates this dual um, this relationship conflict. So we kind of started to dive into that and explore um, what are some of the other ethical implications, what are some of the legal implications, and that's kind of where we began. So if if you're a clinical psychologist, MSW, right? Or in the case of, of um, Dr. I, Jeff, Jeffrey, he's a, a PhD. Are you a PhD also? Um, I'm a doctoral candidate, so I'm still okay. in graduate school. So you will be one. So you're going to be Dr. Cassie one day, the way he's Dr. Jeffrey. (laughs) And I'm seeing you as my shrink and I have issues, whatever they are. And I say, you know, I really love my Maltese and I'm having trouble getting, I remember the last time we discussed this, somebody that wanted to get into an apartment building that didn't allow dogs or, Mm -hmm. or restaurants, movie theaters, or airplanes, which creates a whole lot of stress on the animals as well as on other passengers. Are you right. saying that the conflict of interest would be you're saying, God, I can't say for sure that you need that emotional support animal, Tracy, to get around or to live in an mm-hmm. apartment? And then it, it, it would interfere with your professional relationship with me as a psychologist. I mean, is that one aspect to this, right. leaving aside the public? Yeah. So that that aspect would be as a treating mental health professional for you, um, my top priority would be our relationship. And it would be me putting your best interest as the top priority in, in the relationship that we have. Um, you can imagine that if I were to say to you, Tracy, no, I don't believe you need this ESA, um, that might potentially create some conflict among our relationship, which could yep. negatively impact therapy. That That makes perfect so, sense. Then, then there's the the problem of people, whoever, capital P people, seeking out the way that I liken it to people that look for pain med doctors to give them prescriptions because they're hooked on addictive drugs, going to a doctor that doesn't even know them and saying, how much do I pay to get that letter from you, Dr. Shrink, to say, oh, Tracy really needs an emotional support animal. And maybe has never treated me or maybe talked to me once mm-hmm. on the phone. Is that another mm-hmm. area, a gray area, you could even say an abuse of the situation? Yeah. And what we're arguing is that those people who are writing those letters, mental health professionals who are writing those letters, not actually having seen the client or with the client being under their care, those are fraudulent letters. Um, right. And there's actually been some sanctions brought um brought against a a mental health professional in Colorado recently for doing that exact thing, for um, allowing people to go online, say that they're experiencing these symptoms, and then signing a letter on their behalf and sending it to them saying they are, in fact, um, qualified to need an ESA without ever having seen that person. So who is the, who is the, um, what is the body, the regulatory body that, that is, chastising or in some way slapping the wrist or taking away the license of refining that doctor who would be in charge of even noticing that um i'm not sure it does depend um what exactly the charges were that were brought against that person for example i think that might have been in a state level um however we have the apa um which is they determine our ethical guidelines and they hold us accountable psychologists accountable for upholding um, different ethical values, which that would surely fall under. Um, I'm not sure that if it 
if it was the APA that brought sanctions against that specific individual. Um, but that would be one of the organizations that kind of oversees our um, behavior. And that the APA is the American Psychological, Psychological Association. And, and then we that, have the, de- the Department of Transportation, which is now, and, and part of what you're helping to, to de- help them to develop some mm-hmm. guidelines, they're developing proposed rules reca- regarding emotional support animals and their owners and and how that should be handled on a plane a train a bus or wherever right Mm -hmm. yeah um so the issue that we're running into with the department of transportation specifically is that they the individuals who write these guidelines they're they're lawmakers right they're not psychologists so right the way in which the law reads is that they an individual needs to have a letter from a licensed mental health professional um, for which the client is under that person's care when what we're saying is as psychologists and according to our ethics, that is actually, those two roles are incompatible. Um, right. For someone to be a treating, treating mental health professional and an evaluator of this need for an ESA. Because uh, that would not be something you studied in, in a mental health school. It's not in any of the, of the, mm-hmm. of the guidelines. I mean, it's a, it's a brand new kind of subcategory of, mm-hmm. it'd almost be like saying, to a PhD shrink or even an MD shrink, oh, you better prescribe some mental health medicines for this person when a psychopharmacologist does only that and is the only one who really has made that their specialty. Isn't it true that that most psychologists, even with doctorates, don't say, oh, you should try this, that, or the other mental health drug because it's not an area that you've studied it's not where your focus is any more than whether an emotional support animal is part of the solution to a person's emotional problems right yeah we would we would recommend that a forensic psychologist could actually conduct an evaluation for a need for an emotional support animal um, because if we're viewing this in the context of being a disability determination um, which is in that letter from the mental health professional we're required to state that this individual does in fact have a mental health disability that Ooh. requires the presence of the animal. Um, so you're disabling someone, um, which is the role of a forensic psychologist um, who are meant to be more of these outside assessors who are more objective, who don't have that pre-existing relationship with the client and therefore maybe aren't so concerned about hurting their feelings that they come to the conclusion that that person does not need an emotional support animal, for example. And there, and there may be people seeking that, that kind of accreditation that don't realize that they are then considered medically, emotionally disabled, and that right. could easily impact whether they can get a security clearance kind of job or any sort of a, yeah. a kind of a job at, at a level where security clearance is needed. All of a sudden, they're like, you can't take it back once you say it. You can't say, I'm mm-hmm. all better. If you're handicapped, you're handicapped. If you're disabled, you're disabled. I mean, it'd be nice if it could just be fixed, but what if you just really wanted your dog and you're like, but I'm not really disabled, okay? I can really have that great job at the bank or in the government that now they won't consider you for, right? Right, yeah, there are a lot of long-term implications that I'm not sure um, are being considered when these letters are being written. So there's a whole nother category of fake service dog which is just the service dog jacket. It doesn't say ESA. It doesn't say emotional support dog. In mm-hmm. fact, as I understand it, and I have a film that's going to be in the Dog Film Festival, if not in the third annual, the fourth annual, about 
some of the veterans with PTSD dogs, I mean, there is no truer sign of a true service animal, emotional support being its main job, but they're very mm-hmm. concerned about for 25 bucks online, you get this plastic card with your name on it and a jacket for your dog and you just feel like taking your dog places and you don't have to even and not only can you do that anybody can do that it's just a wide open not even black market it's completely on the on you know visible but Mm -hmm. it's against the law for anybody another passenger or the stewardess or the train conductor to say well, why do you have that animal? It is illegal to mm-hmm. ask them, right? So on the one hand, right, the emotional yeah. service dog, you have to have a letter saying that this is an emotional service animal and you are emotionally handicapped, disabled, or whatever the word is. But with a service dog, it's the opposite. Anyone can get one of these fake jackets and nobody mm-hmm. is allowed to ask you. It's illegal to ask. What's up with that? Right, so there's a lot of fear um, among especially like airlines, for example, and um, landlords uh, also just fear of asking um, for any kinds of specific details about the disability. So um, when individuals just see that this animal has like a service animal vest on, there's a lot of fear about, um, you know, some of those regulations that you're mentioning related to ADA and not inquiring about someone's disability. Um, and so there's a lot of what we're what we're hoping to help do is to clarify what cases in which you can, it is appropriate to ask um, and cases in which it is not appropriate to ask and what questions can you ask and what questions can you not ask um, in order to help like for example the Department of Transportation or specific airlines to clarify and distinguish which which of these animals are in fact service animals as defined by the Americans with Disabilities Act and which are emotional support animals and which are are neither right which are the right. which are just people feel like having their dog on the plane or the train with them mm-hmm. i mean isn't that yeah, the so, big concern is the fakers as mm-hmm. much as the legitimate ones or for you guys in the field it's all of it so service animals there there are two categories there would be maybe a physical disability and then a psychiatric disability so those, there are two categories of service animals in that context, and then emotional support animals are a completely different um, arena. So somebody could, in fact, have a service animal for a psychiatric disability, but that is, in fact, different from an emotional support animal. How so? Because the PTSD, the, the dogs that the, that the veterans have, and their needs are mm-hmm. profound. I mean, many of these men and mm-hmm. women come back with such what used to be called shell shock that leaving the house, Mm -hmm. severe depression, but just leaving the house, being in crowds, the dogs have completely transformed their lives. And Mm -hmm. it's very touching. And I've seen a bunch of movies about it and we're all aware of it. And it's the realest thing on the planet. But what's the difference between that service animal and an ESA? Because to me, they're the best sort of description of what I would think of as an ESA, emotional support animal Um. being. So, right, the the way in which they're different is the PTSD dogs are trained specifically for that purpose. Good point. Um, to address, to address mm-hmm. the impairment that that person's experiencing from their PTSD. That's right. Whereas the emotional support animal is just there because it makes someone feel better, feel more comfortable. It's not, the animal doesn't serve a specific disability-related function. Um, it's kind of the best way to think about it. They're, okay. It's more of a general, you know, I feel better when my dog's with me rather than this is my PTSD dog who helps me 
um, when I am experiencing some flashbacks or maybe help um, comfort me when I get high anxiety, for example. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so the dogs are trained to, to pick up on uh, an incipient panic attack. Uh, right. And, and, and they, they nudge them. They, they get their attention away from it. Sometimes they lie on top of them. They do all kinds of things right. that specifically address that individual person's um, physical way or, or, or inner emotional way of manifesting the issue. So emotional support animals is a very gray area because almost everyone listening I'll bet you would say, I I definitely feel better when my dog's with me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. no doubt about it. You could, on a scale of one to 10, it's like an eight. Most of the time that my dog with me is an eight. Unless they're pulling really hard on the leash and I'm trying to get home, it's an eight. So <laughs> so how do you just, I mean, that's, that's the gray area. Is someone saying, yeah, and I want to wear a vest and I want to take the dog with me because it's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. Yeah, it's it's tricky because there is a lot of research showing that there is there are benefits to animals, right? Just generally yes, broadly. Yes. The the human right. animal interaction, we do see a lot of positive benefits from that. However, um the definition of an emotional support animal, as you're kind of alluding to, is very gray. Um there's no specific training required, not even like basic obedience, for example. Yes. Um, there are no specific requirements on for example, like shots the dog has to have wow. um, or things that we would think of as basic, basic requirements of an animal wow. that's going to be taken into public spaces. Right. That's um, amazing. That's totally amazing. So, so the lack of guidelines on emotional support animals is, is one kind of issue. And that, that introduces a whole, you know, a whole nother area of work that's needed is just clarifying what is an ESA, what is the bare minimum requirement. Um, and just the fact that the other issue is that, you know, they're just becoming, it's becoming overpopulated um, on airlines, for example. And as you kind of also previously mentioned, it's discrediting these actual exactly. ADA um, right. service animals. And so part of, you know, we're not, we're not trying to dispute the fact that there is research showing that there's benefits to having your animal present, but that isn't to say there is no specific research on emotional support animals that we are aware of to date showing that these specific emotional support animals in this context have a beneficial effect. Um, because as I mentioned, we haven't actually defined what an ESA right. is and what the bare minimum requirements are. So, so it's, it's, it's really a really, it's a really, it's, and, yeah, it's, it's catch 22 or just a circular reasoning with no reason to it. And the fact that the animals not only have no obedience, which makes it a pain for everybody, but honestly, if you just want to be animal centric, taking a dog that is not trained and desensitized to being in an airport, to being on an escalator, to being in an airplane for eight hours is utterly cruel. It is so right. selfish and so self-serving to that person. And many of us have experienced it. Many of us who travel a lot for business or so on lots of planes, it's utterly shocking. The dogs are panting, they're agitated, they're trying to get away. They're, it, it's the saddest thing in the world. And you see a, a real guide dog for the blind or a real service animal that's been trained. And those animals are like statues because from an early age, they've been trained that this is their job is to be still as quiet as a mouse and still as a statue and be mm -hmm. chill, you know? So it's, it's fair to everyone around them, but also to the animals. So those of you that are out there that are abusing this, y'all know how I feel about it. Cassie Bonesse and 
her colleagues are going to try to help to nail down what all of this means so that it, we do the right thing by our whole community, animal and human. Cassie, thank you so much. Wishing you a wonderful baby, and we'll talk to you when you get to the next stage of research, okay? Great. Thanks so much. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with Blake talking about Guardians of Recoleta. What an amazing movie. We'll be right back. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He's devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, and now he has broken new ground by creating a new dry and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein. Clean Protein was inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey, and 90% of the protein in the Clean Protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in traditional dry cat food like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits, that are high in oxalate and lead to rapid metabolization, which actually increases your cat's hunger. The primary ingredients in Dr. Elsie's clean protein are the highest biological value proteins available, and the result is that your cat's appetite is satisfied longer without compromising her health. If you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet, make the healthier choice. The proof is in the protein. I am back with Blake Curry, and... He's going to be talking about the Furry Foundation, which is a pretty great name, but particularly this divine movie, Guardians of Recoleta. Blake, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you, Tracy. I'm really glad that uh, I could be on your show. This is amazing. Well, the incredible thing is that the cat community, those who really support kitties in this world, particularly around the world, particularly community cats, particularly stray cats, all know about the work that other people and other groups are doing and how extraordinary that when I was on the Community Cats podcast, Stacey LeBaron said, well, do you know about this movie, The Guardians of Recoleta? I said, I most certainly do not. And you and I were introduced, <laughs> and I go to look at your movie, and I'm thinking, how could you have made this movie and just been waiting in cyberspace for the New York Cat Film Festival to happen? Talk about this movie, what inspired you to make it. It is super, super cool. To those of you who've seen well, the movie Keddy, I just want to say to people, which is kind of a travelogue film. It was a full-length feature documentary that played in a lot of art cinemas um, about community cats in Istanbul, showing the charming, adorable interaction with these kitties and the various people in the neighborhood. Uh, Guardians of Recoleta takes a much different and deeper look. Uh, what does it all mean, to, especially to Americans or Westerners who have certain ideas about cats that live out there? So do go ahead and talk about you and Adrian and and, uh, and making this movie. Oh, well, thank you, Tracy. Yeah, no, it actually all came about from about uh, our first trip to Buenos Aires, Argentina, 10 years ago. Um, at the time, we were we were still dating um, and we you know really took advantage of, of living and Dallas Fort Worth, which is where we're from, and the big airport there. And so we tried to travel as much as we could. And Argentina has always been one of those places that we had to see. And, um, you know, there's a very famous cemetery there in Buenos Aires uh, called the La Recoleta Cemetery. And Recoleta happens to be one of the nicest neighborhoods, uh, unbeknownst to us, in uh, Buenos Aires. And it has a cemetery that is unlike any other in the world. It's ranked as one of the most beautiful in the world, the architecture, the planning. This was at a time when it was created 
that Argentina and the United States were economic equals in the early 20th century uh, and late 19th century. So they spared no expense. And um, consequently, um, Eva Perón is buried there. So everyone wants to sort of, uh, don't cry for me, Argentina. They yes, want to have that moment. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That everyone is familiar with Madonna playing that in the movie. And so we had to go see it. It was at the top of our list. It's free, uh, still is today. Uh, and so we walked around. We found her her tomb there among many other beautiful mausoleums. And um, along the way, we noticed that there were several cats that we saw. Uh, and, you know, as Americans, we're just not, at least we weren't at the time. We were in our uh, early 20s at that point, it, we just had never seen this before, where cats are sort of coexisting in a public space, in a public monument, a landmark at that. And, um, you know, they were they looked reasonably healthy, well taken care of. And so, you know, we, we got a couple pictures with them. And, um, you know, along the way, we realized, oh, the thought, we didn't think much about it. You know, we right, right. kind of went at home, back to our day jobs. And fast forward, uh, about six years later to uh, one of my coworkers uh, who is from Argentina. And uh, he actually said he was going back to visit his, his family. And so I said, Hey, if you're going back to, to Buenos Aires, check on these cats, see if they're still there. He came back, said they were, we knew at that point um, that this was almost, you know, what, six, seven, eight years later, we had to do something about it. And, the only way that was going to happen is if we, uh, the first time we were going back to our day jobs, we knew this time we would have to leave our day jobs to actually do something about it. Um, now, let so me just interrupt. We, when you say do something about it, you mean chronicle it or save these cats? <clears throat> both. So what we, we recognized on that first trip there many years ago, we knew we had to go back and get answers. No one really knew how these cats were taken care of. So... Uh, we we made an effort to go back uh, to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and, and get to the bottom of how these cats are being taken care of. And we ended up asking the right questions, talked to several people. It took many days to figure out this because this was just some, turned out it was some woman who happened to be um, very elderly and of means and uh, did not want anyone to know she was doing this. So um, she was... Very difficult to approach initially, but she did invite us over. We talked for quite some time, uh, and we got to understand that her husband was originally buried there. And, um, she would go back to visit him, and, and she saw these cats. But it, this, this cemetery became a dumping ground for cats. You know, places around the world, yes. they yes. don't have animal control. They don't round up all these cats and stick them in a shelter. There's a, the way that actually they can sort of coexist. And so she was. Um, you know, having a caretaker and a veterinarian come by, a veterinarian would come by once a week, caretaker would go by twice a day. You know, it sort of arranged it under the table with the cemetery to take care of them. And now they're more or less mascots of the cemetery. If you go on Instagram, if you go online and you look up uh, Recoletta Cemetery, chances are, if you just search an image search, you will see cats in the majority of those pictures because yes. they just become sort of a... Um, and so we wanted to know, how is this possible? How is this continuing? So... Um, that first trip there was sort of we shot enough uh, material and pictures and video to put, to put out a trailer that would go into a Kickstarter. So we launched that, and we also knew that this woman was, you know, in her 80s and probably not going to be around for uh, very much longer, and she needed help. She couldn't do all this by herself. Um, and we thought, wow, what an opportunity if someone could uh, somehow 
make this a, a showpiece of generosity and, you know, animals coexisting in a public space. Um, and there's, there's just so many great things that could come out of it. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but we wanted to make the inroads of at least bringing this to light. And so we decided to, you know, put the Kickstarter, make a documentary and also found Furry Foundation, um, the 501c3 nonprofit that uh, sort of went hand in hand with this um, documentary. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a work in progress. Um, it's changed our lives. Uh, we, we definitely now know that there's just so much uh, behind uh, what you might think is uh, just a sort of a surface story. But there, if you go behind it, you can see there's just so much more. And we wanted to find that out. And so that's what we aim to tell in this um, documentary. And, and what I found really fascinating was that we Americans in particular, Western people to some extent, but Americans in particular, we're going to fix things. Like you said, we have to do something about that. It's a very naive, all-American feeling. We're going to make this better. We're going to bring our brand of how to look after cats mm. to, to this other country. And in a country like India, it's nearly impossible. It's so big and there's so much mm -hmm. ingrained, uh, you know, habits, if you will. But in this one cemetery, I could see how you would view it as a project, a place where cats are dumped and surely we can, I don't know, tr is it not exactly trap, neuter, release, which is the American kind of idea of a community of cats. But in addition, the whole idea of neuter, which was obviously not something much done in Latin countries and certainly not. No. For stray cats, which means that the the misery, if there is any, would continue and maybe get worse. And their one guardian, the guardians of Recoleta, she was going to die, and there were no succession plans, right? I mean, she was paying right. a lot of money and putting a lot of time and thought into twice a day feeding and a vet checking them out. She dies. All of a sudden, they're dependent on these humans who've been paid to come. And they're not paid to come anymore. I mean, that really is a problem. If you're going to take on that responsibility with community cats, you can't just, it's like putting out a bird feeder, not exactly, in the middle of winter and going, never mind, it's too much trouble to fill it. And the birds are like, but wait, you got us in the habit of coming here. I, it's a lot worse with the cats. What I think is, is really brilliant with your film, so honest and so real, and what makes it such a genuine documentary, is you went there <clears throat> with an intention to get to the bottom of something. But something right. else emerged, some, a whole nother narrative emerged, and you had no choice as documentarians but to follow that. And then, again, as in my opinion, great documentaries, not hit somebody over the head with the outcome, not tell them what's right or what's wrong, show them what happens when well-meaning, meddlesome Americans... I could call you guys that, but really you're documenting <laughs> yeah. what happens, right? But, you know, I'm saying this with all respect and affection. Sure. I mean, we've all been there. My friend Yvette, she brought a street dog home to California from India, only to discover mm. the dog was pregnant. And then she lovingly, carefully placed the 10 puppies with friends mm. and, you know, did all. So, you know, yeah. what is it good to bring a street dog home from India? Does that really solve something? I don't know. We all, we Americans often have that impulse. So what you document of the people who did, quote unquote, rescue some of these cats and take them out of their, oh, it's not really fair that they just live out here. I won't tell what the, the end result of that is, but the fact that you documented it so openly and honestly and truly, it's just food for thought in, in the most amazing way. The, 
the Cat Film Festival, for those of you that haven't heard me say much about it, is going to be November 5th in New York City at the School for Visual Arts Theater alongside the third annual Dog Film Festival. And Guardians of Recoleta is really embodies everything that Cat Film Festival is and needs to be and wants to be. And until I saw your film, Blake, I wasn't convinced that that there would be films of enough gravitas and of enough beauty and touch people and make people think and feel, which is the whole point of these animal film festivals. And and you did all that. Now, you created the Furry Foundation as a nonprofit and you raised money in order to finish this film, right? Because the story that it tells and, and the voice that it gives to these animals right. or their equivalent exactly. in other countries matters. But is it very hard to maintain a nonprofit? I always thought it was like a really tricky thing. Do you, are, as part of being a nonprofit, is part of the mandate that you must raise money or not necessarily? Well, yeah, I, I mean, for us at this point, I mean, Furry Foundation came about as an extension of sort of what was the inspiration behind it, which was the documentary. And uh, Guardians of Recoleta really um, aims to tell the story of there's just you know, in Los Angeles, where we reside, there's um, 3 million feral cats in Los Angeles County. Yep. And, you yep. know, is, is there a way that, that they can all be taken care of uh, at this point? Probably not. But what you can do is you can set an example. And, yes. you know, at this mm-hmm. cemetery, this it attracts tourists from all over the world. It really, I mean, Buenos Aires is, um, I believe, the most visited um, city in Latin America. I'll be um, darned. So, I, or one of them. They're in the very top, I believe it's in the top three. So you have visitors from everywhere. So if you can somehow set an example and show this is what works well for here, it could very well work in other public places. There's no need to necessarily round every, uh, every animal Correct. and Correct. stick them in a cage. So, um, but back to your point, though, about um, this, you know, we, we raised the money with Kickstarter specifically for the film, but then part of the, the funds that we raised, we created Furry Foundation. So that has become its, its own entity. Um, and right now, I mean, we're just really in our, our first year of full operations. I mean, we got our 501c3 in early 2015, but we were still busy with work. And so we really had to divert our attention away. It wasn't until uh, the summer of 2016, where we really started to to take off with that, um, and you know, it's just my wife and I. Uh, it's Adrian and Blake, basically <laughs> doing the day to day, and you know, looking after them, pulling uh, strays uh, off the streets uh, of South Central Los Angeles or South Los Angeles, and then also going into the shelters, Los Angeles Animal Services, and you know, we're partnered with Best Friends Animal Society and NKLA. So we're trying to give a lot of these animals a second chance. Um, And, you know, it it goes back to the starfish story that you see on the beach. I'm sure you've heard this before where, you know, this, uh, I believe it's an older man walks up to a younger girl who is, is picking up different um, starfish and throwing them back in the ocean. And he's saying, why are you trying to save all of them? You can't save them all. Uh, It doesn't make any difference. And she said, well, it made a difference for that one. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so so what I'm wondering is, 
since filmmaking is clearly in your blood, if it wasn't before it is now, are you planning to do something similar in Los Angeles, which has a huge straight cat population problem and a huge problem where L.A. County is somehow not allowed to spend funds on spay neuter, which is simply the most back ass thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, it's like, what? You've got the money and that's what you cannot use it for by a public mandate. Anyway, somebody smarter than me yeah. will that out. Are, do you plan to train your camera and tell a story of such a bunch of cats in LA somewhere? You know, I, I, that has not, um, that's definitely something that I have not had a chance to really uh, think about in the film aspect um, just yet. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that there is a huge problem here, and that's something that um, Furry Foundation is aiming to do is to help animals, you know, where we are in our own neighborhood uh, and abroad. Uh, and there is, you know, there's a saying that charity begins at home. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, that's true. And, and for us to, to, to sort of, you know, think of far-flung places to try and help out first and foremost when you're not taking care of your own community and your own neighbors, I mean, I think as being a good neighbor, that, that should be a priority for us. And, um, you know, we're doing everything that we can uh, at this stage. Uh, obviously, more resources, um, our own facility eventually, um, that can have an impact. But um, I do believe there is a big opportunity for that. Um, and there's not enough awareness that is brought to, you know, the United States second biggest city in the country. That's, that's, that's um, all I'm saying. We only have another minute before we wrap up, but I have another wonderful film in the festival called Jetty Cats about a community cat, a uh, bunch of kitties that live under the flight path of, of LAX um, wow. International Airport. And I just want to say that, yes, you can help one starfish at a time, and there's no harm in doing that. But I do think that a movie like the one you've already made and one that I really believe you should make about L.A. would have an impact far beyond those individual cats that you can pick up and rehome and, and bottle feed and so forth, all of which is great and good, but there's very few people who can make a movie like you guys can make. I just want to point that out to you. Anybody can save a cat and lots of people do. Lots of people turn a blind eye. That's not so cool. But just remember that the power of film is enormous. And the, and the power that Guardians of Recoletta will have, you hope, all over the world where it's seen, I think could happen in a city like L.A. with all of its its enclaves of cats that, that need someone to show who they are and what they are. Thank you so much for being here, Blake. I can't wait to see you in L.A. for the Dog Film Festival. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be great fun to see you and to meet you. And next year, the Cat Film Festival will come to Los Angeles as well. But in the meantime, put on your filmmaker hat and don't, don't <laughs> abandon that part of your brain, okay? Thanks so much oh, for being here. Oh, not at all. See you soon. You're honored Bye-bye. to be part of it. Great. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Kiss those kitties, hug your pooches, and we will reconvene next week. Bye for now. Bye.